This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. As so many presidential hopefuls jump in the field, it got me thinking, why were some of them electrifying crowds versus other ones that were sort of bringing sleepier rallies to bear? It was something that I was just thinking about, not just as a nerd or student of politics, but mostly because of my own experiences in front of some of the most electrifying and inspiring people that I've had the privilege to interact with one-on-one and in a room sitting across the table. Every time I heard of the name Beto O'Rourke being floated across the media or even among peers in the office, there seemed to be this lighting up of people's eyes. In a similar way, I started reflecting on maybe less household or celebrity-oriented names and wondering why similar effects started to wash over me. It almost felt that every time I was with a friend who I objectively thought was funnier than me, or even friends that I had that were in comedy professionally, when I spoke with them, even my humor game and my laughter got a little bit more raw and stronger. I kind of felt that I was bouncing off of them, reacting off of what they were bringing, and felt a little funnier along the way. Now, no one's saying that I should be a stand-up comic, but this concept, this idea of being able to react strongly to the person or persons in the room, bringing their own energy, their own ideas, and their own authenticity to the table, is actually being talked about in a very specific form of how human-to-human and interpersonal interaction may take place, not just up on a stage, or not just among the famous of those of us that happen to hold a mic in their hands, but even in everyday interactions. This effect, notably framed as the catalyst effect, has actually been studied and examined by numerous executives, professors, and thought leaders across education, HR, and psychology. But joining us today is a very special guest, Dr. Jerry Toomer, who him along with a few of his co-authors have actually brought more than 30 years of analysis across HR, across education, and across psychology to frame up what this effect actually means in their book, The Catalyst Effect. Specifically calling out colleagues who, the minute they step into a conference room or on a stage or even onto a soccer field or basketball field, that there's this elevated sense of performance around everyone around them. Not just among those on the team, but maybe even onlookers that are looking to be inspired by the game, by the performance, or by the sport. So, is this catalyst effect something that can be bottled? Is it something that can be learned? Can it be exported? Examining that today couldn't be more important because whether you are fawning over a favorite comedian or you are pondering who you want to vote for in the next presidential race, one thing remains true. Leadership in America and the way that leadership creates a trust in institution is being questioned at an all-time high. It's not so much that leadership doesn't exist or leaders themselves aren't really in the wings training and investing in themselves to give back to their communities or their teams or their companies, but the very nature of how one leads, whether to be brash and bold, whether to be calm and elegant, whether to be graceful and inspiring, or, much like my fandom of Better O'Rourke, whether to captivate an audience from a stage, all of those questions will constantly be cut and packaged and retaught in almost every different school, novel, or even business executive training program. But 
this notion of catalyzing a room around you, actually looking at leadership as not only a means for you to be captivating, but to inspire those and make sure that they too grab a clipboard, get out there and mobilize their communities. That spark and excellence and that spark in behavior, that's something that almost feels unprecedented. But according to Dr. Toomer, an executive in residence and adjunct professor from Butler University, there's unique insights that can be brought to bear that capture that and really infuse what this next generation of leadership can and ought to be about. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. In their book, they identify that behaviors and skills are required to lead from wherever you are, regardless of your role or your title. The book describes powerful leadership and teamwork principles, clearly defined competencies, and leveraging field research from professionals across multiple sectors. They actually tap into what it means for you, too, to be a catalyst in your communities. Dr. Toomer, thanks so much for joining American Enough. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. I, I guess I, I want to start with a, a question that you probably ask a lot of uh, folks in, in your profession. But when you think about leadership, that specifically is not just about someone who's a household name or is a brand affiliated with, with a famous company. How do you actually think about a leader that inspires you? Because if you're somebody that identifies core competencies and skill sets that make for excellent excellence in leadership, do you end up viewing the world through that lens constantly, or do you feel you, you yourself are somebody that has, has the ability to be catalyzed by others out in the real world? Uh, the answer is yes. I'm, I'm catalyzed every, every day I get up and walk to my coffee shop or my classroom or my consulting business, uh, I'm ignited. I'm encouraged by folks who bring things to the table, ideas to the table, uh, in a way that inspires and, and triggers spots in my mind that that build, uh, I guess, ideas and initiatives that I want to pursue with energy. So, uh, with that in mind, I've experienced uh, catalytic leaders, Vikram, in any number of settings, and that's personally in the sports setting and the arts setting. And particularly in the in the business setting, and having experienced that not only in the United States but across the world, because I worked globally and lived in Hong Kong for four years, uh, I got a sense of uh, the idea that there's something below title and authority. There's something more to just being in the position that leads to an individual being able to influence a team or a group. Uh, and some people who have title and authority ha also have that ability to personally influence others, and that's cool. That, that makes it really effective, right? And, and some of those folks don't. But more than that, there are people in the middle of the organization that have these skills who play leadership roles that are really vital to the organization. And and, and what exactly, when, when you think about a, a sense of leadership, um, all, all too often I think that a lot of people assume, and you point to this in your book, that 
to be an effective leader, to be somebody that inspires uh, those are, people around them and actually creates change in, in, in individual communities. That community can be your neighborhood, it could be a city, it could be your office, it could be really any medium that, that you operate in and that you value. People assume that you have to be in a position of power or you have to be in a position of public trust. And I, I think this is really important because on this podcast in particular, we, we have spent some time examining the cultural identity of different institutions and the powers that be behind them. And there tends to be this sort of swirling consensus in this day and age. Um, and this has not just to do with politics, but whether you're the, an executive at a media company, whether you are, you know, you occupy uh, one of the the country's most famous addresses in politics, um, whether you are, are a even even an owner of a basketball team some years back that was you know maybe caught up in in their own challenges, trust in different institutions seem to be unraveling on some level at least in terms of when you poll American audiences about that level of trust. Um, I kind of want to ask two questions and feel free to tackle this in any way. One. Do you think that there is something different about the way leaders are being approached uh, or are approaching their their organizations today that is resulting in this dwindling trust of institution? And then secondly, for for those that that feel that they want to create change on their own accord, but you know, they aren't in that C-suite, they aren't in that boardroom, they aren't in that oval office. Um and, and if they feel a little bit Un unable to do something on their own accord, what ha what does this book teach them in terms of wanting to to mobilize change and be able to counter instances of leadership that they maybe don't already prefer or believe is going in the right direction? Yeah, th thanks for the question. Let, let me take the second part of that first, if I could. Um, first of all, when you walk into a bookstore and you're 26, you're a 30-year-old, professional and you look at the leadership shelf, you tend to see books that are about Jack Welch or Sheryl Sandberg or Bill Gates or whatever, people who are famous, who've had authority, who've been brilliant. Uh, you don't see books about people that have led from the middle, if you will, or led from positions that aren't the star or aren't authority. So first of all, that struck me. Uh, and, and from my experience, I know people lead from whatever chair they're in in an organization, in a conference room, or on the floor in a basketball team, or in a symphony, there's leadership occurring at all levels and from many corners of those organizations. So my curiosity was, well, what are the skills underlying the ability of those folks to lead beyond title and beyond authority? And I've been curious about that for decades, and I finally had time enough in my life to actually do the field research to dive into what I think is essential for those folks to be able to lead from wherever they are. Uh, and that's kind of the tagline to our book, being the ability to lead from whatever position you are in, on the field, on the stage, in the conference room. An inspiration for us, Vikram, on the sports side uh, has been Shane Battier. And so to talk about Shane just briefly, Shane was a, the player of the year, college player of the year, uh, drafted by the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, underperformed, if you will, didn't, didn't do as well as they thought he might, went to the Houston Rockets, and Daryl Moore, I found, as they used him and deployed him in the team, not as a star, not as the guy who was in the box score with the most points, the most rebounds, the most assists, but they, they let him do and encouraged him to do what he does best, which is play the floor really well. He positions himself. He was known as the guy who held the ball the least amount of time on the floor. So bottom 
line, when he was on the floor for the Houston Rockets, the team played better. And so you kind of say, well, what's that about? He's not in the box score. He's on the floor. The team plays better. So let's peel that back. So we spent a fair amount of time interviewing athletes and actually talking to the chain himself about what he does. And so some of our, several of our competencies uh, derive from the conversations we've had with people in sports with Shane as that kind of lightning rod example. And, and some of the field research that, that you mentioned earlier um, is, is kind of bottling up or not bottling up, but, you know, maybe distilling what those core principles are that, that speak to how someone can be, um, you know, a catalyst for change in their immediate environments. Can you unpack that a little bit and, and tell us specifically how you arrive at those conclusions as to kind of what those core competencies are that result in this catalyst of, uh, catalytic effect among leaders? Yes. So we, we interviewed uh, over 80 people in depth interviews in three different settings, uh, sports, obviously, uh, not only basketball, but other sports, uh, the business setting, people at, uh, at all levels of business from senior to down to staff folks, technical professional people. And then very interestingly in the arts as well, both the symphony and an improv. And what we were looking for is how, how does leadership and how does this idea of being a catalytic leader play out in those three quite different settings. So with that as our foundation kind of piece of curiosity, we, we asked that question of all these folks, who do you know who elevates the performance of others when they step onto the stage, the field, or into the conference room? And so when we started to, to gather those answers, we recorded those answers, and we gleaned from those answers then the behavioral descriptors. And, and Vikram, we went, I'm a behavioral psychologist, so we went deeper than just, oh, uh, you know, Vikram brings a lot of energy to the room. We went to, okay, now explain that. You know, what is it specifically that they do? How do they carry themselves? How do they walk? What do they say? What are their facial expressions? So we have this um, narrowed down or, or, or we dove down to a granular level where we've now identified the behaviors and now we can train those behaviors. And so we've established a model that we think that virtually anybody can look at and say, oh, I can be an influential leader in my organization without a position of title or authority if I can uh, understand these 12 competencies and begin to master them. Now, that's fascinating to me because I think, uh, you know, for, for on the one hand, and, and this is me not trying to be a cynic, but just trying to tease this out, um, particularly as somebody in your position that has, has studied behavioral psychology, there may be instances where somebody is able to take away what are core components of an individual that ladders up into their presence, their awe, their aura, and then try and, you know, either harbor some of that themselves or, or, or build towards it. Then there might be others that question that and say, well, is this a chicken or egg situation that maybe those people that seem um, that, 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 it, that a lot of people admire, that a lot of people are inspired by, they are already the quote unquote anointed ones because when I see them with awe, um, perhaps they have that position of power or authority or have been buoyed or elevated by the circumstances around them. So inherently, when I get asked that question, my mind might default to some of the most notable luminaries in the world or that I've met in my life, as opposed to recognizing, you know, someone 
as perhaps every day, if you will, as a, a member of your church or a father or a teacher or, or someone that doesn't necessarily have that rock star title attached to them. How do you necessarily solve for that or make sure that those energetic effects um, can be you know, reduced down into these core principles, regardless of that person's initial title to head off that, that chicken versus egg critique? Okay, great, great question. So uh, let's assume you're walking into the to the MBA classroom and you're teaching leadership. And one of the, the first questions as a professor you might ask your class is, uh, who do you admire as a leader? You know, uh, pick a historical figure, a political leader, a sports, you know, whatever it is. Pick somebody. And invariably, Vikram, you get the answer that you just described. You get the people that are well-known right? and, and, and usually have authority. Uh, when I walk into the classroom now, I, I don't ask the question in the same way. I ask the question in, in the way that I just posed it to you is, and who do you know that they walk when they walk into your conference room or your team, make others around them better? And it may not necessarily be the person with authority or, or title. So I start to move people toward uh, the idea that uh, others have influence in the team and that they lead that team, in fact, from positions that are not of authority. So uh, let me ask you that question. Okay, so Vikram, who do you know who, when they step into the conference room or onto the field, I don't know you well enough to know what sports you play or what instruments you play, but pick, pick your setting, music, sports, or business. Who do you know who's not necessarily the conductor or the first-chair violinist or the team captain uh, who you want in the room because they make others better and why? Yeah, I, I guess when you when you kind of offer this exercise that localized it localized the exercise, if you will, um, maybe two come to mind. One in business is a a friend who I used to actually work with in D.C. and it just so happens we both um, now work out in in the Bay Area at two totally different companies, but our work overlaps a fair bit. And when I think of him, I think of an incredibly high energy brought into a room and and that's not just sort of a throwaway statement somebody who um almost all, all always seems optimistic always has a million and one ideas and is a bit fearless in in trying to tease out those ideas and and actually implement them um and particularly coming from a world of dc and coming from a world of government where you have a million reasons not to do something i think that fearlessness in in t trying out new things um in a new work setting for us uh, is something that I admire. And then maybe just for extra credit, I've got a, a friend, a dear family friend who outside of business is a is a huge musician, an incredibly talented musician who uh, you know, somewhere along the way in his life decided he didn't want to pursue uh, the career that path that he was on. He was he was a lawyer by training and, and did a, a full 180 and really doubled down to wanting to teach music to others and and invest in his own music. And his sort of attribute is to constantly and, and feverishly be consumed by music. So I always see him, even if we're, you know, hanging out at a bar or hanging out at his house or whatever the venue, um, him gravitating back to what he knows and loves, either singing something under his breath or if you're hanging out at a house, you know, busting out a violin or singing a few notes, um, you know, vocally on his own. And so I think in both instances, there's this innate passion that you, it's almost like a flame that you can't shut out. 
that that's really good. And, and to, those are themes that we heard from the other interviews as well. There's this passion and there's this commitment to whatever the team's objectives are, right? Whether it's making good music or good conversation or business decision, they bring that commitment and they bring a certain amount of energy to the room. Uh, let me share with you, let me pick up on the music example. We interviewed several people in the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. And one of the folks that I, I find delightful is uh, a young woman named Rufan who plays upright bass, right? Uh, Rufan's probably four foot 11 or five foot tall. You know, she's absolutely dwarfed by the bass. So she sits up in this chair, but she plays the instrument with such enthusiasm and such energy that when you ask other people in the orchestra, who do they look to, to derive energy from when they're playing a piece, she's one of the clear people that they look to. So she's in the back, she's playing an instrument that does not have a lead melody role, and she's diminutive. Yet what she does with her eyes and her body and her language is just magical on stage. Uh, and, and so it's kind of saying that anybody in any position in that musical venue can bring that energy. You know, it could be the French horn player, it could be the first chair violinist or whatever. So we found example after example of that. If you go from music to improv for a moment, and we could talk about improv for a long time, the whole theater idea of people playing off of one another, nobody being in control, but actually leading, following, leading, following, and making the best product that they can by listening carefully and picking up on the ideas and responding very clearly. Uh, my God, I think I'd love to see our Senate and our Congress do some improv, right? Where they really had to listen <laughs> and pick up on each other's ideas. But that aside, then what we tried to do is talk with Rufan and say, Rufan, are you intentional about this? What do you do? And, and so she describes the behaviors that she does and she self-reflects. And that's what we've captured in the book. What is it people are doing? So that's to your first for your second example, the music right, example. Right, the music example, yeah. If I could go back to your first one. Yeah, absolutely, please. Uh, I, I'd, like to ask, I'd like to ask you the follow-up question. The, the person that, that if, if I recall, they're on the West Coast, behaviorally, what do they do? What do they look like? How do they walk? How do they talk? What are the facial expressions that lead you to believe that they have this influence? They're they're on the shorter side, and I, I'm not particularly tall myself, but um, they they're they're shorter by kind of average standards, maybe for for someone uh, of of their age in their mid thirties. Um, they they've got kind of this um, kind of bounce physicality of a bounce to to their energy, where um, when they are speaking, when they are holding court. Um, or they're just you know shooting the breeze with somebody coming by. If they're standing vertically, the, there's almost like a gesticulation that that means that they're very kind of invigorated and passionate about what they're conveying. But they're doing so in an upward way, um, which you know maybe is a little bit because of just the line of sight and that being shorter, but also um, because that bounce and that lift that they're offering with every idea is animated a bit. Um, and kind of jolted a bit by their delivery of that idea. Uh, I, I don't know if there's anything in particular I would call out about their gait or their walk, but um, in general, there seems to be also a facial expression that where the eyebrows raise, and you know, there's a fair amount of joy um, and, and kind of 
a lot of smiling to everything, which I think in this day and age where, you know, people are bombarded by social media cues of what their friends are doing and what they look like in, in different instances of different lightings, um, you know, like it or, or not, that you, you tend to have more of a visual appreciation for people that are expressing a positive sentiment rather than sort of, you know, the brooding uh, uh, steel look of a selfie on, on, on a social media platform. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you just described without packing it, unpacking it in too much detail, you know, aside from being shorter or taller, uh, virtually everything you described is, is trainable in my opinion. Um, you know, they, those are all those are all behaviors that people can consider, think about, and do more of or less of. Um, we asked the interviewees in our research: uh, Are people born with catalytic skills? Are these just baked into our genes, or can you learn to be catalytic? And and most, if not all, but most people said no. Most of these are learnable. You know, when we reflected on them, a few of them might be personality connected, you know, just the basic extroversion idea, you know, are you a bit chattier? Do you reach out to people a little more? Uh, so that might be a little more baked in. But yet, my example of a catalyst is a person that I've worked with for decades. His first name is Scott, who I worked with in Hong Kong and out in the U.S. Scott's not an extrovert. Scott is, Scott is just one of the very best guys I've ever seen at listening to people whatever their culture is, whatever their language is, validating what he's hearing, being able to integrate, summarize, and describe what the issue is, and then help people move forward to achieve a goal. He's just magical at doing that. And he stays out of their way. He's the ultimate facilitator of that. So whenever I have a group that I'd like to have a member in that's going to move that forward, I call Scott. Uh, not because he's magical and highly entertaining, but because I know he's going to make the group better and help us achieve our result. Um, so I said several things there. I, I think these are learnable traits. I think some aspects are baked in, but I think for the most part, anybody who wants to learn how to lead from wherever they are in the organization can intentionally develop skills to do that. And how much of uh, of the environment that someone is in um, is informing their ability to to absorb those qualities. And, and so some of this is a, a question about does the arena that one operates in matter? You know, you've mentioned um, sports and certainly the basketball court in your book. Um, we've just talked about music and, you know, the the, the environment of playing within an orchestra or a symphony. Um, we've also talked about business. I, I'm curious if you, you've noticed that in the same way that there are core traits that end up laddering into a certain type of uh, kind of leadership performance, if there are also core attributes of different venues, of different mediums of interaction that also inform those attributes. Uh, give me give me an example of what you're thinking of, and let me react. Well, I mean, I, I I would say that certainly if you are in the business of of politics, or if you're in the business of business, it, your your task every day is to make decisions, and you have to make decisions with totally different. Um, uh, 
kind of shareholders in mind, right? Your shareholder, if you're in the private sector, um, is really thinking about your fiduciary obligation back to, to them and, and making sure that your business is profitable. One can argue if that's the only responsibility one has, but certainly that is a core tenant that motivates leadership in the workplace. And separately, if you're in the business of politics, um, you, you you tend to traffic in, in what are the optics of what I'm doing and, and how will this make me or the position or the campaign of ideas look in the eyes of the public and what what is the the return on investment in terms of will this individual with this idea get reelected and and be able to preserve their ability to continue to inform policies in both instances you have two different kind of end pursuits that you're chasing. Um, but undoubtedly, some of the core competencies that you write about in the book uh, to really be a type of change agent and leader in either environment, the public sector or private sector, you would argue that you could use some of those principles horizontally, agnostic of the medium that you're in. But I guess I'm curious if whether in your field research for this book or in your conversation with a litany of other people across other sectors, um, whether these elements change their outlook. So if you're a leader in politics, you're a leader in business, if you're a leader in a symphony, if you're, you know, maybe you run a clinical uh, psychology practice and, and you, you lead that practice, um, if you're a leader in, in a hospital operating room, so on and so forth, there are different levels of kind of intensity and pace and urgency and different variables that motivate what your end state is. And I'm curious if those also factor into what can be bottled up as a catalytic change agent in leadership, or if if the principles you outline in your book are completely agnostic of that arena? Uh, my quick answer would be, I think they're largely agnostic, Vikram. Uh, I think they work across virtually all settings. Um, why do I say that? Um, the fourth cornerstone of our of our model is, is impact. Uh, and, and so, and that's results. So, so when you utilize the competencies, it's for a reason. You're not doing it just because or just to have a nice conversation. You're, you're using the competencies and you're gathering together as a group of people or groups of people to accomplish a goal. That can be a political goal. It can be a sports goal of putting the ball in the hoop. Uh, it could be uh, Yo-Yo Ma and Sandeep Das and the Silk Road Ensemble trying to make the best global music that they can. But the goal is clear. Now, how do you get there? And that's where I think that the competencies come in, and I think they apply uh, virtually no matter what. So for groups that are largely in disagreement, uh, it comes as no surprise that, that first of all, need to understand the other person's motivation and what they're saying and where they're coming from. And we do too little of that uh, today. So that's why you know our core of building credibility our first cornerstone includes uh, trust and clear communication and, and invigorating others with a sense of optimism that we can work together to get the task done. And, and so I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I was just curious that, that optimism component um, is, is something that I think I'm I particularly observe in, in leaders of all stripes where you know whether you're, uh, you know, a technologist that is talking about uh, what has been a, a a big course of concern in this country and around the world of you know new technologies, including artificial intelligence or robotics, um, may end up. Uh, uh, cutting away at jobs as we know them today, um, or if you are, um, you know, 
perhaps somebody that that works in politics and you are unhappy with the current state of affairs, um, you you end up running sort of ideas counter to to the current status quo. Um, in in either instance, you often will hear leaders actually when they're challenged with this question. Um, say if you're if you're a technologist on stage and you're you're Elon Musk talking about maybe the fate of robotics, and and you end up understanding the gloomy picture of what automation may mean for jobs, um, but you're asked by a reporter on stage at a conference, how do you feel about the future? Uh, they tend to offer a state of optimism that may, there may be challenges around the corner, but we can certainly tackle them. Similarly, I think you know, in, in the political bend, Barack Obama, when, when he uh, delivered a farewell speech in Chicago in his final year in office, um, he laid out a number of, of challenges to our democracy, um, but also laid out a case for being optimistic about a new generation of leaders, uh, you know, grabbing a clipboard, lacing up their shoes and getting out there and, and organizing for change in their communities. Um, similarly, you know, speaking of, of the the sort of symphonic studies that you've done in your work historically, um, the San Francisco Symphony, where I live, um, is poised to actually have new leadership with a new conductor coming in um, or being phased in over the next few years. And a lot of the coverage around uh, what he brings to bear as a new conductor um, is about an optimism of embracing kind of new aspects of music, including integrating new technologies to how the, the, the symphony conducts itself. And so in almost every instance, no matter what the challenge are laid out of something that's new around the corner, new leadership at the symphony, new automation and its threat to jobs, new risks to our democracy. You almost always see leaders um, buttressing the the obvious case for concern with the with the hopeful prescription of of optimism. Is that something that is is innate to their outlook, or do catalytic leaders feel that they need to almost articulate that as because they also represent um, a sense of hope and they're embodying that in their own answers regardless of what they believe. How, how authentic do you feel that optimism is in leaders of a certain level uh, of public visibility? Uh, that's a great question and a complicated one. Um, hope, hope and optimism in certain roles in our society is essential, right, in, in politics and in the leadership of the San Francisco Symphony, um, the new guy's name. How do you pronounce the new guy's name? Solomon. Solomon. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. I'm. 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 I may be mispronouncing it myself. Quite, quite a no. He's quite a quite quite an interesting guy. So so to some extent, it's part of the job. I need to inspire my people as a leader up front. Hey, follow me. We can do this. You know, we can conquer anything. Um, and, and I think that's fine. I, I, I validate that. I think there's also though this element, as I look at it, as, as is everybody brings a sense of optimism to the table, balanced by a sense of realism. So even if we are in the depths of, of recession or that we're in depths of a business challenge or we're messing up the rehearsal for a, a new piece that we're going to perform this Saturday night, uh, everybody has an underlying sense of optimism that together, working on this really hard, we can achieve a result that we're going to be proud of. Uh, and so I see the optimism piece as less being rah-rah and more being a dedication to the confidence that we know we can do well uh, if we work together and we, and we really persist. Um, and that requires trust. Vikram, I think it requires trust in each other, uh, trust uh, 
to me, it is a little bit of an overused word. I t- I'd like to break it into three parts for the listener. Uh, I can trust you to be competent, right? That you know your stuff and you're going to do well. And that's maybe one reason we're going to achieve this great result that we want to achieve. And I'm optimistic that we've got the right talent in the organization. So I trust your competence. Okay? I trust the fact you're going to show up that you're actually going to be on time and you're going to be here and you're going to be reliable and you're going to get your work done. And then thirdly, I trust that you're going to have my best interests in heart, that you're not going to walk out in the hallway and talk behind my back and and undermine me or the group. And so when I'm working with teams and we talk about trust, I like to talk about all three aspects of those trust, of trust, because it tends to kind of get grouped as, Hey, do I trust you as a person? Are you going to be my friend and have my back? But I think it starts with showing up and being competent. And I think that then leads to, boy, if you have that, and now you're communicating and really listening to each other, and you know what your goal is, now you've got the platform from which you can become optimistic. And your optimism is not based on kind of a flaky idea, we can do this, it's based on uh, on a solid commitment to each other and an understanding of each other and a willingness to listen. And that, that willingness to, to listen uh, to one another and kind of build an empathy for one another, I think, in many respects, um, could could maybe kind of uh, undergird some of the, the conversation that we were thinking through at the top, wherein, um, you know, if you believe the 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 kind of market research out there or the polling out there that there may be a dwindling trust in different institutions whether it's government whether it's media or what have you um that sense of interpersonal uh trust and investing time to build that trust with one another um re- regardless of whether it's a major institution um or with a world leader but more so at the everyday localized level where it's with your neighbor with your your community member with your classmate with your office mate um it seems like that can can have a huge um, benefit in terms of rebuilding a confidence um, in the environments that people have around them. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, zooming out from from the book itself, as somebody that has um, definitely not only examined different elements of of interpersonal engagement, um, but really understood how everything from confronting a colleague at the office to being a leader on the basketball court. Um, there are a lot of different ways that we can cut and package leadership um but but i am curious just from from your perspective maybe taking off uh your your hat as an author as a professor um as an educator as a psychologist uh how do you view this notion of people not trusting um leadership in their communities uh you know there's obviously a lot of positive that people can take away from your book in which people are if they would like to, they can soak up various elements of what it means uh, to be a change agent in, in their environments. Um, but there are those cynics among us that that drive um, maybe that that certain dwindling uh, trust and in institution that that I've I've kept referring to. And just as a kind of everyday human, do you feel that? those that 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 doubt that lack of trust in certain environments is founded on any you know reasonable standing um or do you think that we all owe it to ourselves and the betterment of our communities to really challenge um those those mistruths or those missteps in in trusting institutions 
Hey, you know, there's the, the phrase um, that Covey coined, which I use in, in my work as well, which is seek first to understand. And in across teams or across political parties or across churches or faith groups or sports teams or whatever, I think when we choose to seek first to understand and then speak and, and then to react, unless we do that, we risk never really coming together in a way that, that's fully synergistic or fully together because we've still got these unspoken kinds of differences and concerns or paranoia about what the other person is up to. And I think, unfortunately, we're seeing that uh, day by day in the way it plays out nationally now with, with politics. So, you know, gone is the day where a lot of the people in Congress and, and the Senate or the House, you know, go go out for coffee or for a drink after work. It's just a much more acrimonious situation. So whether that's national or whether that's the local community, uh, I certainly hope the coffee shop becomes a, a pleasant place of, of where people can demonstrate catalytic skills uh, more effectively. Um, I'd also say, if I could add one more thought that's tangential to this, Vikram, with, with technology and with, with communication being being so uh, thorough, right? I mean, you've got access to almost everything instantly uh, on one hand. And then let me add another feature. And in organizations, you also are flat. So rather than having the hierarchy where, where, your, where your minister or Walter Conkright or whomever tells you what's happening and how you should think of that, we all have access to almost all the data right away, right? And, that, and that's true in businesses as well. So in Dow, when we went from about 12 layers to six layers, or if you look at Zappos, which is almost layerless, people are working on teams and they have to rely on data. They have to rely on mutual trust and understanding to get work done. Nobody's standing over them, telling them what to do or refereeing the interaction between them. So that's where the catalytic skills really come into play. Um, if, if you can master the catalytic skills in those kinds of environments, I think you have a much better sense and likelihood of being successful. I, I want to round out with um, kind of a, a common question or theme of the optimism that we referenced earlier, which is kind of investing a fair amount of faith uh, and hope in, in generations that, that follow us. Um, I, I thought uh, one of the, the, the a set of, of catalytic change agents, as far as I could tell, at least in the public sphere, um, for my opinion, was the the handful of, of very brave students um, from from Florida, from Parkland High School, who, after you know tragic shootings, seized their own um, rage and and their own concern for the family members and victims of those shootings into quite an epic uh, movement themselves in terms of their position on on gun control and and politics aside, one of the more interesting things that I remember reflecting on on the news coverage of of their leadership, which you know continues to endure um, across state capitals as well as our nation's capital in D.C., were, were a lot of talking heads on TV saying, hey, you know what, this is the next generation of leadership. And I remember feeling, as somebody that, that doesn't quite believe that I'm as old as I am, I remember feeling just a few years ago, um, I, my generation, my millennial generation was referred to that next generation of leadership where the baton was being um, handed off and passed down to. So, uh, you know, aside from 
from me feeling a little too old now. One thing that's interesting is that we as a society always um, rightfully so want to place a fair amount of, of hope and energy and leadership in the next generation, the generation that we invest now for, you know, through education, through school, through leadership development, to make sure that they're equipped to, to take that baton and continue to lead their communities moving forward. And so based off of any evolution that one may or may not see in America about what leadership looks like today, or and based off of all of your work that you've done over the last few decades, I'm curious, for young people today who will be leading tomorrow or who may be leading as early as today, um, what is it about the core catalytic principles that, that they can start applying um, in even early instances? Or what, what is it that we, as maybe older individuals in our community, have as a responsibility to make sure we're parting down to them, to make sure that that sense of optimism of, of who leads us tomorrow really can start that education and inculcation today? Uh, great question. Uh, one, uh, just the whole idea and, and the approach to you can lead from wherever you are. You don't have to be the team captain or the, the first chair violinist, right? Or the, or the director in your organization. You can play a leadership role in your teams. And, and here's how you can do that. Uh, you can take a look at some of the skill sets that lead you to have an influence that is maybe a little bit outsized, right? In, in, as a team member. And, and frankly, those skills, when you master them, will serve you well if you become a leader with authority and title later. They're, they're essential to both, both positions. So I'd say get after it and, and be intentional about it. And don't just think about it, read about it, practice it. Uh, we've developed an assessment tool also, Vikram, that, that so the whole idea of this is not only to plant the idea out there, but now provide tools for folks of that age and that, uh, that inclination to say, I'd like to get better. How can I get better? So here are the here are the uh, here are the tools that you can use. Here's an assessment that you can have your friends fill out, give you feedback. Here are your strengths. Here are your gaps. Here's how you get stronger. Here are specific things you can do. And whether you're leading something, uh, an idea in your community, or in the business room, or on the sports field, um, these are specific things you can do to have a bigger impact. Dr. Jerry Toomer is the author of The Catalyst Effect alongside a few other co-authors that take a deep dive at catalysts, the very variables and ideas, as well as motivating elements that make leadership a difference everywhere around you. After 30 years of his work as a human resource educator and psychologist, and sorry, human resource executive educator and psychologist, we're glad to understand that of anyone who might be challenged by the modern-day face of American leadership, there are ways to refine it, grow it, and invest in it right from the starting place of your own desk, your own home, and your own community. Jerry, thank you so much for joining American Enough. Thank you. It was delightful. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening.
This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.